I want to thank you for coming to Central, where we seek the transformation of our lives, our communities, and the world through the renewing work of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. My name is Taylor Bruce. I'm the pastor of Student Ministries here. Um, And I want to tell you a story tonight to begin, because I like telling stories. And I like telling stories about myself. They're usually not good, and this one is not good. Um, So uh, when I was a junior in college, um, uh, I had probably my worst semester of school ever. And it was capped off by this one singular event that um, if you're a student, I'm sorry you've heard this story before, but it's like pretty, it's pretty foundational for me. So I'm just going to share it again. Um, Now, um, as you had to know about me in in college, initially, I kind of floated through school, you know, like barely made enough grades to continue passing and not getting on the dean's list, like the negative dean's list, not the positive dean's list. Um, And um, I also hated writing papers, Um, or at least at the time I thought I hated writing papers, but I did hate writing papers. So at the beginning of my uh, first semester of of junior year, I was gifted this amazing thing. We had, I had a New Testament professor named Bobby Kelly, he's still teaching at the school I went to. And he, um, he, he told us at the beginning, he's like, hey, here's the deal. Um, at the end of the semester, you guys all have a final paper to write. Like, he's like, but if instead you would like to read these two massive books, like a thousand pages each over the course of the semester, we'll just hang out in my office at the end of the semester, have a conversation and we'll call it good. And I was like, yes. This sounds great. Um, so as the semester rolled on, I pulled the books out every so often, and I would read about a page or two. And then I would put it down and go play video games or something else. And then I would pull it out about two weeks later. Anyway, I got really close to the time we were supposed to be there, and I calculated, it's like, okay, if I could read 250 pages a night, I will make it, which did not happen. So day of, I'm sitting in my, uh, in my apartment, and I found a summary of the book, magically. I don't know how there's a summary of it, but here's the summary was like 120 pages. So I had to skim that, get some pointers, and thinking like, okay, I'll just go sit in, um, in his office. We'll have a conversation. I'll say some stuff that sounds like I read it, and we'll move on. So I get to the office. We're having a conversation. All the students, I can tell they've all read it and really enjoyed it. And I was like, this is probably a really good book, but, you know, I don't know what's going on. Uh, but I had some talking points and so he came to me and my comment was like, oh yeah, what that guy said is what I thought. Also, it was really cool. Um, and so I'm sitting there thinking though, I'm thinking like, oh shoot, he's going to ask us how much we read before we leave and I'm either going to have to tell him the truth, which is like zero, or I'm going to have to lie. And so we get done discussing and he's like, all right, you guys have a great semester. And I was like, are you kidding me? He didn't ask what we had to do. So we're like all standing up, literally walking out the door, and all of a sudden he looks back and says, oh, oh, hold on, uh, I need to know how much you read so I can give you an actual grade for this. And I was like, oh. And so I'm sitting there going back and forth, do I lie, do I tell the truth, lie, tell the truth, lie, tell the truth. And so he finally gets to me and he's like, Taylor, how much did you read? I was like, um, I read like 75% of the first book and 50% of the second book. And my heart, when those words came out of my mouth, just sank. Because I don't normally lie but in that moment, I did not want to get caught. And, and what I had done in that moment, actually, if I could put a different word on it, was I had actually betrayed him. Like, he trusted us to do something different for the semester and to have a good conversation about it. And I, in my laziness, in my immaturity, and whatever else, my arrogance, I didn't do the work. And then I lied to him, and I took a grade that I didn't deserve. And so then while all my peers went home for a holiday break— and they all um, enjoyed time with their families, I assume. I was racked with guilt for the whole time. 
So there's essentially a celebration that I had been invited to that I kind of faked my way into and then really didn't get to have. We've all known betrayal. In fact, as humans, we've known betrayal since almost as long as we've known the universe. It's something that just is here. And I think we have to ask ourselves, are we just stuck with it or can there, is, something, is there something that can be done about it? Tonight we're going to see what God is doing about it. So as we read and we dive further into our passage, what we're going to read is one of the most famous stories of betrayal in all of literature and history, like real stuff. Um, so follow along with me. This is out of Matthew 26, uh, starting in verse 17. It's in your bulletins. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say, um, say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Lord teaches the humble his way. My soul longs for your salvation. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. I pray as um, I preach that it would be your words, um, Father, that you would preach to my heart and that you would preach to um, these that are here. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Um, So jumping into this story, we're kind of at the end of this like really exciting week for Jesus and the disciples, right? He's entered in you know, all these palm branches waving. He's gone toe-to-toe with some of the religious leaders. He's healed some people. He had this really weird dinner where this woman poured a bunch of oil on his head and his disciples got mad at him, which we'll get to in a little bit. And all these things happen, and it's coming kind of to this point. um, The whole reason they're in Jerusalem is because it's Passover is coming. And the disciples are like, "Um, okay, Jesus, this has been all really good, but we need to get going with the Passover. We need to celebrate. So Jesus tells them, okay, go find this place, prepare the Passover meal, and we will, we will hang out. And so they go, they gather uh, for this first night of Passover, um, right? Uh, so this Passover is a week-long celebration um, of God's goodness over his people, um, specifically looking back at Exodus. Um, but um, it, it all culminates at the end with this big, big feast, right? But they're having the first night of dinner here, and they're all enjoying one another, enjoying each other's company, probably sharing some stories, laughing together. Um, But as they're doing this, we learn that Jesus knows that one of these friends of his is going to betray him. And so Jesus has a a thing he's got to deal with. What what is he going to do with this info? Because he could reveal it to everybody, right? If he knows who it is, he could tell his disciples, hey, one of you is going to betray me. It's actually this guy. Um, and, And what would happen is, is they would say, oh, great, let's, you know, hurt him or kick him out or do something else or let's Jesus, let's run away really quickly and then we can, we can bypass all of this. Or he can keep it to himself and he can let the betrayal play out. 
Now, if he, does, if he does the former, Jesus, of course, lives, but we know that then we would all still be under the curse of death. But if he does the latter, well, then he's going to die, but we all get life. And so Jesus turns to his disciples, and he does reveal that one of the disciples is going to betray him, but he doesn't reveal who it is. If we look back at the beginning of this chapter, we find out, like I said a second ago, Jesus was at another dinner party earlier in the week. And while he was there, his friend Mary was also there. And with tears streaming down her face, she poured an incredibly expensive bottle of oil over his head. Now, all of his disciples got mad because it was really expensive. And their thought, being practical, was that's a lot of money we could have used to serve the poor. And she just wasted it. And of course, Jesus rebukes them. He says, she's preparing me for burial, and they don't get that. But he says that. But none of them is more upset about this than Judas. Because Judas left that dinner, and he went to the religious leaders and said, how much money will you give me if I give you Jesus? And so the betrayal starts. And we have to ask, why doesn't Jesus reveal who his betrayer is? That's what the disciples are probably wondering, as he says, someone of you is going to betray me. And we're left asking the same question. So, of course, the disciples are now all in a little bit of an uproar. And so they all come to him over and over and they keep asking him, Jesus, is it me? Lord, is it me? Lord, who is it? How could we know who is who's going to betray us? And so he tells them, well, it's, it's whoever dipped their hand in the bowl with me. Which isn't really answering their question because they all dipped their hand in the bowl with Jesus at some point that night. So even still, it could be any of them. But Jesus does reveal the fate that awaits his betrayer. He says, that one is going to be cursed to the point they should wish that they had never been born. Now Judas also walks up to Jesus and asks if it is him. And again, Jesus actually fails to reveal who his would-be betrayer is. Because he says to him, you have said so which is kind of a, a, a Greek way of saying, you tell me. Is it you? you? And what he's essentially telling him is, you decide if you're going to carry forth with your plot or not. I know what's going on, but you decide if you're going to do it or not. And so Jesus, at this point in the dinner, when he could have revealed it at any moment, still has not revealed who this betrayer is. And then Jesus takes this giant left turn in the middle of this whole thing, right? They're having dinner, they're talking about betrayal, and then he's like, okay, hold on a second, we're going to redefine this dinner that we're having. He, he redefines it in almost seemingly cannibalistic terms. He says, eat this bread and imagine it's my body, and then drink this wine and you can imagine that it's my, my blood. And then Jesus goes on to initiate some new covenant and invites all of his betrayers that are there with him to partake in forgiveness. And then at the end of this, Jesus promises that he won't eat this meal again until he's in his father's kingdom. This dinner took a really weird turn all of a sudden. And if I think if we were the disciples, we'd be like, whoa, what are you doing? What are you talking about? And if he's telling them that I'm not going to eat this meal again until I'm in my father's kingdom, I think they're probably saying, wait, isn't that why we're here in Jerusalem in the first place? We were here to inaugurate the kingdom. Also, are you telling us that you aren't going to finish Passover with us? Like, this is it? We're not going to do the rest of the meals this week together? Imagine they're thinking, Jesus, you're kind of scaring us. Because you're telling us one of us is going to betray you, but you won't tell us who it is, so we can't stop it from happening. You're talking about your body being broken like bread and your blood being spilled like wine. Are you going to die? And, and are, you, 
are you just going to let it happen? And you're not going to finish our Passover feast until we're all in your Father's kingdom. How are you going to bring about the kingdom if you're dead? I think they're saying, are you sure you don't want to just tell us which one of us is going to betray you? Because we could take care of this right now and skip past all the bad stuff and set up your Father's kingdom and then we can just keep on feasting and celebrating. Isn't this fun, Jesus? Don't you want to just keep doing this? So this celebratory dinner has become weird and a little depressing. And as we read it, we are left in a fog of confusion just like the disciples. Again, why didn't he reveal his betrayer? It's because his real enemy wasn't actually his betrayer. It was the temptation to reveal who that betrayer was because that would have ended what was going to happen to him. And if that ended, it would have kept him from dying, which would be to deny all of his followers, including his enemies, the opportunity for forgiveness and a place to sit at the king's eternal table. So to understand how all this happens, we have to, I think we have to understand the bigger story that Jesus is inviting us to consider. It's namely that of a king's feast and the way that he invites us into it. So I mentioned that they're at Passover, which was instituted in chapter 12 of Exodus, and then reinstituted in chapter 13 after they actually exited out of Egypt. And the whole point was God saying, I want you year after year after year to have a celebration, to remember that I delivered your ancestors from their oppressors. And that is my posture towards my people, is that whatever is oppressing them, I will deliver them from that thing. And this is to be a yearly reminder for you that that's what it is. And so every year the Jews would gather and they would, they would reenact this thing through these meals, right? They would eat certain foods and they would relive these events over and over again. Now, in the Old Testament, there's actually a lot of celebrating, which may surprise some of you. Um, but there's a whole lot of celebrating that happens in the Old Testament, and in fact, throughout the entire Bible. And there's one celebration in particular that comes at the end of a pretty famous psalm, Psalm 23, that I think Jesus is also pulling from here. Of course, Psalm 23 is, you know, about how our shepherd leads us through all these things, and eventually what it comes to is that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, and I will eat this feast amongst my enemies. That's what David says. When Jesus proclaims that he will not drink the wine again, so the very weird section, when he comes to the end, he says, I'm not going to drink the wine again until I'm in my Father's kingdom. I think that this image at the end of this psalm is in mind. This image of dwelling and feasting in the house of the Lord forever, where the one who's worthy of this king's feast is eating among his enemies. See, Jesus' forgiveness allows and invites both his friends and his enemies into the king's feast. Jesus is relaying to his disciples that he's the Passover lamb, and as such, he's offering his body and blood to his friends and his enemies and tells them to continue celebrating this act as a signal that they are forgiven and have admittance to the final Passover feast and as a foretaste of the never-ending feast that is to come in his Father's kingdom. And Jesus will share this final feast with both his enemies and his friends. As he has been shepherded through the valley of deepest darkness by his Father and brought into his Father's house to celebrate. Now as the darkest part of the story draws near, Jesus chooses to save his friends from their own betrayal over saving his own life. He's had opportunity after opportunity to betray his friends, and instead of doing so, he continues to move down the path toward his own death. He faces off against the temptation and comes out the other side having defeated it 
again and again and again. And the passage ends with Jesus offering forgiveness to all of his disciples. Now, all of these men are accustomed to these stories and celebrations. Jesus is actually filling them out and giving them their ultimate meaning. meaning. What he is doing is he's saying, I, just like the shepherd in Psalm 23, just like the Lord, I am the Lord and I will be your shepherd to lead you through the valley of deep darkness, which is their betrayal of him. And he says, I will be your Passover lamb. I will cover your sins. And I will bring you into the Father's kingdom where you will feast on the final Passover meal for all of eternity where there is no more fear or threat of death. And he's telling them, you will no longer be my enemies and betrayers, but my true friends. How crazy is this story? Somebody willing to give up his life to go through the most agonizing thing ever just because he wants his enemies to be his friends. But Judas can't bring himself to accept Jesus' gift. When we read through the passage, could you hear the bile in his, in his voice when he calls Jesus rabbi? When all the other disciples call him Lord? They approach him with reverence, asking if it's them who's going to betray them because they're genuinely scared. Judas knows it's him. And so he calls him rabbi sarcastically, ironically, with as much malice and spite as he can muster. Because Judas had an expectation of Jesus that Jesus couldn't and wouldn't fulfill. We could say that actually in accepting that anointing from Mary without reprimanding her action, that Jesus, or that, yeah, Jesus betrayed Judas' expectation of him. And here's the most scandalous part of this whole story is that even during his betrayal and after it, Judas still had the opportunity to truly embrace and accept Jesus' forgiveness in the coming feast in his Father's kingdom. But he just can't bring himself to do it. Instead, in his arrogance, he is simply left to go through the motions. So when they take this meal for Judas, it's just bread and wine. That's it. Jesus is promising all the disciples a lifeline for their betrayal in the form of his broken body and spilled blood as the forever Passover lamb. They must accept the gift and place that blood like their ancestors did over the doorposts of their houses or accept Jesus' sacrifice as their only lifeline to put it over their own lives for it to be effectual for them. But remember the Exodus story because this is the context that this is within and Judas is actually playing the part of Pharaoh Instead of accepting the lifeline of the lamb, he's rejecting it. And he's cursed, as Jesus says, to the point that he probably wishes he was never born. He rejects Jesus' offer and actually doubles down on his bitterness and hardness of heart. He doesn't accept the blood of the lamb and he brings the curse that Jesus speaks upon his head. Now, ultimately, after watching Jesus get arrested and go on trial, and realizing that Jesus was truly innocent, he comes to grips with his betrayal. In the next chapter, we read that he runs back to the religious leaders, tries to give them their money back, almost as if to say, if I give this back to you, then it's almost like it never happened. He feels remorse in some respect. He realizes what he has done and tries to make it all go away and absolve himself of any wrongdoing, but the religious leaders won't have any of it. And they tell him, what is that to us? That's on you. 
And because his heart has been so gripped by his own arrogance, he can only look to himself for absolution and he ultimately finds himself wanting. What power does he have to absolve him of any wrongdoing? Only the one he betrayed can do that. And from Judas's standpoint, he's about to die. It's almost as if, if we read through Psalm 23 and we got to that part about the leading through the valley of deep darkness, it's almost as if Judas got stuck there with no shepherd to lead him out. He was on his own and he didn't know the way. His heart of betrayal kept him from feasting with his king and ultimately, in hopelessness, he hangs himself. Let's consider one of the other disciples at this party, Peter. I love Peter. Peter's my guy. I get Peter really well. He also betrayed Jesus. He didn't sell him to their enemies, but he did abandon him when Jesus was alone and needed his friends the most. So surely, I would think that Peter, after he has denied Christ three times, and here's that rooster crow, the words that Jesus spoke, one of you will betray me, came back to him. And I think he's probably wondering, wait, it was me. I was the one that Jesus saw. And I think Peter, too, would have been tempted like Judas to, for his heart of betrayal to keep him from feasting with his king. He was in danger of being stuck in the valley of deepest darkness with Judas. He needed a shepherd to guide him out. But Peter's heart was not hardened like Judas's was. So, so I actually wonder if when it was all said and done and Jesus' body was in the tomb, if Peter didn't start to remember some of the things that Jesus had said about rising after three days. I wonder if in that interim time, Peter pondered Jesus' words even at the Last Supper and instead of leaning into his own guilt, he leaned into Jesus' promises that he would have this meal again with them. I wonder if he started thinking, would Jesus come back and make it all right? Would he make right what I had done wrong? He'd seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. Why couldn't he do it for himself? Could Jesus be the good shepherd who would bring them safely through this valley of deepest darkness to feast in his father's kingdom? And I think, indeed, as one by one, each of the disciples in their own way abandoned and betrayed Jesus in those last hours of his life, each would have thought the same thing. Was I the one he was referring to? And each of their hearts of betrayal could have kept them from feasting with their king. They were in danger of being stuck in the valley of deepest darkness with Judas, and they needed a shepherd to guide them out. Now remember, Jesus' love was scandalous. All these men were really Jesus' enemies. And yet he called and addressed them as friends. And his whole mission was to make it so they were not his enemies any longer. In the face of their betrayal, Jesus offered them forgiveness, free of charge. Jesus was their good shepherd and was not going to leave them in the valley of deepest darkness. Many of us have stories of betrayal in our past. People we've trusted as friends who have used and abused us in various ways. And they have made themselves our enemies. But I think we have to see that and understand that in the light of knowing that we are also guilty of betrayal. Because since the time God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and tasked them to care for it, but they instead betrayed him by eating the fruit he commanded them not to eat, we have all been marked as God's enemies. God has placed us in this garden we call earth and he has tasked us with taking care of it and the people in it. And every time we use and abuse God's creation and the people in it for our own gain, we betray them and God. And our lives become one long series of cause and effect moments that keep us stuck like Judas in Psalm 23, verse 4, in the valley of deepest darkness. Each of our hearts of betrayal keep us from feasting with our king. 
Like the disciples, we need a shepherd to guide us out. And it can't be us because we don't know the way. All we know is betrayal. Indeed, for us too, Jesus' love is scandalous. Where Judas' response to feeling betrayed was to harden his heart into utter darkness, Jesus' response to actually being betrayed by us was to undo our betrayal and call us friends. His whole mission is to make it so that we are not his enemies any longer. In the face of our betrayal of him, Jesus offers us forgiveness, free of charge, so we can sit down and feast with him for all eternity in his Father's kingdom. We only need to humbly accept his forgiveness. But understand that Jesus' forgiveness does not leave us the way we were. He's not content to let us stay acting like his enemies. He is working to make all of us his friends who all sit down at his table to feast for all eternity with him. And in this life, that often means us working alongside him to repair any relationship we're in that's broken. So I spent all of that holiday season thinking about that like two-second moment in my life when I lied to my professor, trying to figure out if I could think of a way to absolve myself of the betrayal without actually doing anything about it. And I sought out the guidance of some friends and a youth pastor I worked with, and his advice was the best, and he was like, I think you just gotta tell him. You see, my sin and my betrayal of my professor was not just against my professor, it was actually against God. And I had a choice. I could harden my heart like Judas and continue in darkness, or I could trust Christ as my shepherd and be led into forgiveness and celebration. The hard part is this, I was already a Christian, so I didn't really have a choice. Because Jesus wasn't going to let me just continue to be a betrayer. I had hurt, even unknowingly to him, my relationship with my professor. And I was surely stuck in the valley of deepest darkness, but Christ was shepherding me out of it. First, by reminding me that no amount of betrayal I had committed could separate me from him and his forgiveness. And second, by calling me into repairing the relationship through the admittance of my guilt and betrayal. So in humiliation, I picked the phone up one night after I think Sunday, like some service at the church. And I called him and I said, hey, Dr. Kelly, you know that meeting we had in your office at the end of the semester and you asked me how much I read and I said like 75% of the first book and 50% of the second book? He's like, "Uh uh-huh, I remember that. It's like, I read like maybe a percent of the first book and zero of the second one. And he graciously forgave me and gave me a C, which I would take. (laughs) For many of us, the valley of deepest darkness is the deep pains of betrayal that we have caused one another. It's the way that we've talked about a coworker. It's the ways that we've treated our children or the ways that we've treated our parents. It's the lies we've told, even the little ones. It's the things that we've said on social media and it's the cheating that we've done. It's the ways that we've looked at one another with malice or lust. And no matter how awful the thing you have done is, Jesus' offer to you is the same. Come humbly, accept my forgiveness, and sit at my table. If the offer of forgiveness was available to Judas, who delivered an innocent man to an unjust court to be murdered, then surely it is available to you. But remember, if you do so, he is not content with letting you stay acting like his enemy. He is working to make us all friends again, and that often involves you and I humbly admitting our wrongs to one another, and working to repair any relationships that we have broken. Now, for many of us, the valley of deepest darkness is the deep pains of betrayal we have experienced in our lives. 
It's the way a coworker has belittled us. It's the way the adults in our lives have used and abused or neglected us. It's the way our children have essentially given us the middle finger when we've given them nothing but love, albeit imperfectly. It's the lies that have been told about us. It's the posts that have been made about us on social media. It's the ways we've been cheated on, the ways we've been looked at with malice or lust. And our temptation is to wish and pray for Christ's justice, like violently, to be enacted upon their heads. Now, as we read the Psalms, surely we can see examples of David praying for justice in such a way to come for his enemies. But this is always put in the context of understanding and trusting God's greater plan and David's own understanding of his own sin and betrayal. So no matter how awfully we have been treated, we are called to remember that while others have betrayed us, they have ultimately betrayed God. And while he never betrayed us at all, we surely have betrayed him. And if anyone deserved to enact justice on his betrayers, it was him. And yet, as we read in this story, what we see is that his response is one of forgiveness. Jesus put the justice that was due us onto his own head so that we would no longer be called his enemies, but his friends. He became the forever Passover lamb that covers all of our sins. And he wants the same thing for our enemies too because before they were our enemies or even his enemies, they were his creation, his image bearers. In fact, he knows every single one of them down to the same minuscule parts that he knows you and I. And in order to restore them, he became the forever Passover lamb that covers all of their sins. And this is the scandalous love we are called to embody as well as those who are covered by the blood of the forever Passover lamb. We too are called to forgive those who have betrayed us. I'm not saying that we are always called to continually put ourselves in the path of our abusers or bullies or betrayers to continue being abused or bullied or betrayed. After all, Jesus offered it to Judas like once. But the offer still stood. And we aren't called to be the Passover lamb. Only Jesus gets to do that. But we are called to pray for our enemies and our betrayers. We are called to pray that they too would come to an understanding of their betrayal before God and in humility would seek to repair whatever brokenness they have created. There are some here tonight who don't know Jesus as friend at all. He's not your shepherd or your forever Passover lamb. Maybe he's just a historical figure or magical sky fairy. Maybe you have an expectation of him like Judas that he can't or won't fulfill. Or maybe you just are sure that he will or will be able, he will or will not be able to meet it. You feel that he has betrayed you in some way or you assume he will. Or maybe you think you're too far gone, have done too much betrayal to too many people. Friend, let me assure you, he is the best friend you could ever have. And his offer is to bring you in. He will never truly betray you. He may never meet whatever need you think you have. And you may still have to endure great pain and suffering at the hands of other betrayers or even just taste death itself. But know this, neither of those things will have the ultimate say over you if you are his friend instead of his enemy. So I invite you tonight to cry out to him. Do not stay in the valley of deepest darkness. Let him be your shepherd and your forever Passover lamb. Let him take you into the forever feast in his father's kingdom. Jesus' desire is for you and I to feast together for all eternity with him. One, I mean, just imagine one big party that just like never ends. That's just the best ever. That's what he's promised us. He's promised us that he will not close out this Passover week and initialize this forever feast until we are all together at his table in his Father's kingdom. 
And there's only one way through the valley of deep darkness and root there. It is through the blood of the forever Passover lamb. Friends, Jesus has fulfilled the new covenant with his broken body and poured out blood. He has done this for you. He has offered you forgiveness for your betrayal. He has called you to be his friend. Tonight, I invite you to accept his invitation and come sit down at his feast. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for all the ways that you are good to us in spite of all the ways that we are awful to you. Lord, we betray you left and right, even those that you would call friends. And yet your posture towards us is always one of grace, always one of love, always one of invitation. I thank you that you don't leave us in this state, and that throughout our entire lives you are working to sanctify us, to make us more into your image, and more into the image of who you originally created us to be. Lord, tonight, for all these that are here, whatever state they're in, I pray that you would meet them, and that you would bless them and love them, and that they would walk away knowing that they are loved, and that you desire to be their friend. It's in your, son, it's in your name we pray. Amen.